Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move as always, and a welcome to a special Helping Hands edition of the program today. The devastating earthquake across Turkey and Syria and, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine have reminded us not only how connected and interconnected the world truly is, but also how urgently and swiftly we can respond as global citizens, from families opening their homes and their hearts to Ukrainian refugees, to the millions of dollars already pledged for earthquake relief. So many of us are stepping up to do our part, but of course, far more must be done. In the next hour, you'll hear from a whole array of guests who are making a true humanitarian difference across the world. In an exclusive interview, we will speak to Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai, a leading light in the fight for girls' education. She'll be joined by the co-founder of Airbnb, Joe Jebbia, as he makes a personal donation of $25 million to the Malala Fund. It's actually the largest private donation the fund has ever received, and their combined message to fight to ensure access to girls' education in nations around the world, such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, India and Lebanon, just to name a few. And the need, of course, has never been greater. Also, this hour, we'll hear from the Chobani Yogurt CEO and founder of the Tent Partnership for Refugees. He's a Turkish-born businessman who's just pledged $2 million for earthquake relief. And he remains a fierce advocate for increased hiring of refugee workers. The Tent Partnership holding a vigil for Ukrainian refugees in London's Trafalgar Square in around three hours' time ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. So we have a lot to discuss ahead, of course, of Friday's sombre anniversary ceremonies. Security in Kyiv extremely tight, with another world leader, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, also making a surprise visit to Kyiv, as you can see here. And U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen today urging G20 nations to up the financial support to Ukraine as well. The U.S. readying some $10 billion in fresh economic assistance to the nation too. And on the eve of the first anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine, we take you to the battered town of Vlada in south, the southeast of the country. The town has been under heavy Russian attack for weeks, as Alex Markart reports. This fight for Vulidar right now is one of the most important and difficult in the country. While the fight for Bakhmut is largely symbolic, this is a very strategic fight for both sides. Volidar is unique in that it sits at the intersection of the two main active fronts in Ukraine, the southern and the eastern front. That is why Russia wants to try to push through here to launch an offensive into Donbass. It is believed that this is one of their shaping operations, the beginning of a larger offensive to come in the next few weeks. But they are struggling very badly right now. They've lost a huge amount of men and armored vehicles as they try to cross open fields, including minefields, where the Ukrainians have been able to inflict a huge amount of damage on their troops. At the same time, the Russians 
are absolutely pummeling this town. You can see all around me, these are Soviet-era apartment blocks, now largely empty. The residents have fled, and almost every single one destroyed in varying degrees. All of the windows have been blown out. Craters here in the ground where children used to play. Ukrainians have the benefit of the higher ground here and these buildings to use in the fighting. But as with so many of the battles here in eastern Ukraine, it is a fight of attrition. Who can hold out the longest? The Ukrainian side saying they need more ammunition to be able to keep the Russians at bay, to keep them from advancing. Alex Markord, CNN, Vulidar in eastern Ukraine. And to Russia now, President Vladimir Putin paying tribute to fallen soldiers on Fatherland Day. It's an annual national holiday that honors the nation's military. To commemorate the event, he laid a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier near the Kremlin Wall. It follows a commitment by the president to further strengthen the country's nuclear arsenal. Fred Plykin joins us now from Moscow. That commitment coming just a day or so after the suspension of the participation by Russia in the New START nuclear control accord. Fred, what more did he have to say about about boosting those nuclear weaponry. Yeah, uh, Julia, he said that he would boost the nuclear triad, uh, as he put it, obviously meaning the nuclear weapons that Russia has, some of them ballistic missiles, strategic bombers, but then also those sea-launched, torpedo-launched uh, ones as well, coming from, from submarines. The Russians obviously uh, not really taking a lot of great pride in their nuclear uh, triad that they have, but it certainly is the backbone, if you will, the last line of defense of this country, and certainly something that the Russians have been talking about a great deal. And you're absolutely right. Of course, the key thing that Vladimir Putin said in that main address to the Federal Assembly is that Russians were pulling out of the New START Treaty, or not pulling out, they were suspending their participation in the New START Treaty, saying that for now there would be no inspections on sites here in Russia. Later, the Russian Foreign Ministry came out and said, look, all of that can be reversed again if there's concessions from the United States. Uh, right now, we're going to wait and see how all of that plays out. But certainly, Vladimir Putin then one-upping that last night in an address that he put out very late at night here in Moscow where he said that Russia would continue to bolster those weapons that they have, specifically the modern ones that they're starting to field just now. Like, for instance, the Sarmat missile. That's a new generation uh, of intercontinental ballistic missiles that the Russians have, which they obviously say are extremely uh, effective and will continue to be the backbone of their nuclear deterrent, Julia. Mm. And, and to some degree, what we've seen this week, drawing attention away from what seems at least from our perspective, to be a, a quite high-profile public spat between the private Russian mm. military group, the Wagner Group, and the Defense Ministry. I believe they called the Defense Ministry treasonous or, or uh, it, accusing them of treason for failing to provide um, significant ammunition and weaponry. Do we have any sense of the, where the, mission, the ammunition that they're now providing is, mm. is coming from? Well, allegedly, it's on the way now from the defense ministry, but you're absolutely right. It's a big public spat. It's really one that's been going on for an extended period of time. This is between the Wagner private military company and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and essentially the, the leadership of Russia's defense ministry. And there's been back and forth between them going on the entire time. Essentially, Yevgeny Prigozhin is, has been trying to portray that he's the, really the one who's effectively fighting for Vladimir Putin, fighting for Russia, especially around the town of Bakhmut. But of course, he uses some pretty brutal tactics there, using people recruited 
from Russian jails to charge Ukrainian positions. But he's essentially had for a very long time been saying that he's the one who is really effective on the battlefield. So essentially what he's saying now, or what he was saying, that uh, there was no more ammunition coming from Russia's defense ministry. And so therefore his troops were starved of ammunition. And that's why a lot of them were dying on the battlefield. He circulated a really gruesome photo of corpses of Wagner fighters or alleged Wagner fighters laying on the snow-covered ground allegedly outside of Bakhmut. The Russian defense ministry, by the way, refuted those allegations. They said that, look, there had been gains made around Bakhmut. There were assault groups working there. And so therefore saying that there was no ammunition available simply was not true. As of this morning, Yevgeny Prigozhin has come out and said he believes that the issue has been solved, that a train with ammunition seemed to have pulled out of a depot. He said none of that is there yet. There seems as though right now they're sort of trying to downplay that, that back and forth that was going on. But this is an ongoing spat that has been going on for a very, very long time between the Russian Defense Ministry and the Wagner private military company. And yeah, I was on the ground near Bakhmut just a couple of weeks ago, Julia, and you could really see it play out there where all of a sudden both sides, both the Russian Defense Ministry and Wagner, were claiming that they were the ones who were on the offensive and charging uh, Bakhmut, obviously trying to take that place. They had hope before the anniversary. Clearly, that didn't work out, though, Julia. Yeah, for plaguing there. Thank you so much for uh, your context and insight. Uh, vital to enabling us to understand this. Fred, thank you. Okay, airstrikes by Israel today to targeting what it says was a weapons manufacturing site in Gaza operated by Hamas militants. Earlier, six rockets were fired from Gaza toward Israel. The strikes come after the Israeli military carried out a raid in the West Bank on Wednesday. Israel says it was targeting Palestinian militants in Nablus. Palestinian authorities say at least 11 people were killed and nearly 500 others were wounded. Hadas Gold joins us now from Jerusalem. Hadas, this is exactly what you predicted on the show yesterday. You were expecting more activity. What are the authorities saying about these latest uh, offensives and, and what's your sense on what we're seeing here? Yeah, I mean, we did expect some sort of response from militants in Gaza, and that's because several of those killed in that military operation in Nablus in the occupied West Bank were members of Hamas and also two commanders of Islamic Jihad, the two main militant groups in Gaza. So it was only essentially a matter of time before they responded in some way, although I do have to say it at least for now didn't spiral into something even bigger. It could have easily spiraled into something much larger. Six rockets fired. Uh, most of them were intercepted by the Iron Dome. One fell in open areas. And then Israel responded with airstrikes targeting what it says was a weapons manufacturing site. And we have no injuries reported on either side. So still much of the attention here is on Nablus and on the aftermath of what we saw in Nablus yesterday, which just the sheer numbers that we saw coming out of that Israeli military op operation, a very rare one, midday. Uh, witnesses said it started around 10 a.m. This is a time when the old city, which is a very compact area full of like narrow alleyways and compact houses, was full. People were at the market, people were milling about, and then there was this raid that started off. We have more than 10 killed and 500 injuries, according to Palestinian health officials, 100 of them from live ammunition. Julia, these are numbers that many here have said they haven't seen since the days of the second intifada just to give you a sense of the scale of just the number of people who were involved and when we're looking at images that we're seeing from the aftermath and also footage from when this raid took place you can just see the amount of people right there that were out on the street getting involved the israeli military saying that they went after militants that they 
blame for partly for both the shooting death of an Israeli soldier a few months ago, but also they say that we're about to carry out imminent attacks. They say that they came under heavy fire, not only from the house where the militants were housed, but also from people around the streets. Uh, but clearly the injuries, I mean, when you just look at the numbers, obviously we do know that militant groups have claimed some of those killed uh, as their members, but there are definitely bystanders, civilians who were caught up in this as well. And we're hearing reports of some, uh, at least two elderly people who were killed, as well as 16-year-old who was killed, and just the sheer number of injuries. Uh, the head of the Red Crescent Society in Nablus saying that the bullets were everywhere. And then even the Israeli military, their spokesperson acknowledging that it was a messy situation. People there, still so many injured, getting treatment. We do know that after those rockets were fired overnight, the UN Mideast envoy Tor Wenesland went to Gaza, ostensibly to speak with militant leaders there, trying to keep some sort of sense of calm. We understand he was there for a, previous, for a short amount of time and then left. And then Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, in a statement uh, before a meeting just in the last few hours or so, essentially saying that uh, the people that the IDF went after shot and murdered, he said, an Israeli soldier, and that they were about to carry out additional attacks. He's saying that they will, that Israel will always settle accounts with those who try to attack Israeli civilians and the IDF. But of course, a lot of concerns right now about where we go from here. Most of the Palestinian territories are on strike today. There is very much a sense of tension in the air. Uh, the Israeli authorities are prepared for even potentially a further response from Gaza, or also what their uh, Israeli police are being pre are preparing for potentially attacks against Israelis. Keep in mind, just a few weeks ago, after a raid in Janine that also killed 10 Palestinians. Just the next day, the next night, was that shooting outside of a synagogue in northeast Jerusalem. So people are sort of getting ready for anything here. And then I always mention this, but you got to look at the calendar. What's coming in the next few weeks? Ramadan and then Passover. So there is no sense. The calendar is not helping any sort of sense of calm here. A lot of worries about what could come next. Julia. Yeah, we'll continue to watch it very closely. Haddiskol, thank you for that. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move, the most loyal workforce you've ever seen. The Jabani CEO says employing refugees is the right thing to do, but it also is the best thing to do for your business too. We'll talk about his latest efforts and later, a CNN exclusive, Malala Yousafzai, on her fight to empower women and young girls with a better education and news of a major donation to her fund. Stay with CNN. That's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move. More than two weeks since a massive earthquake struck Turkey and Syria, and there continues to be desperate need for more tents and temporary housing. Nearly 900,000 people in Turkey are living in camps like the one you see before you after losing their homes. On Wednesday, the death toll passed 49,000 across both nations. Nada Bashir joins us now. Nada, and uh, the desperate requirement for shelter requiring some novel solutions. Just explain where you are. Novel solutions indeed, you know. I mean, we are on a ship at the port of Iskander, and this is in Hatay province, which was 
among some of the hardest hit areas uh, following that earthquake two weeks ago and indeed again after that aftershock on Monday. And this ship is now housing more than a thousand people who've been displaced as a result of that earthquake. Their homes either completely destroyed or damaged to a point where it is simply too unsafe to return. If I just show you behind me, many of those people here right now are people that have been displaced. They've been put up uh, in this cruise ship. There are 400 cabins on board this ship housing people. And this is one of the ways in which uh, volunteers here are trying to help, in which the authorities are trying to help those who have lost absolutely everything. Now, you mentioned that figure a little earlier, more than 900,000 people currently living in tents. And we've seen these tents cities now scattered around Iskenderun and parts of Antakya. They are all across southeast Turkey. And this is, of course, a somewhat more robust a way of providing support to those made homeless. They each have their own cabins, there are activities for the children, regular meals, as well as medical support on board. But of course, this isn't the reality for the vast majority of people who have been displaced. We were in fact at a camp just a little, uh, just a few hours ago, just nearby here, and the majority of the people at that camp were Syrians, people who have been displaced already by the conflict, now displaced once again as a result of this earthquake. Many of the families that we spoke to there have said that they've been waiting for more than two weeks to be offered a tent. They are still sleeping on the streets, and at nighttime it is particularly cold. Many of them with young children. So while this is quite a novel way of providing support for people, and this is one of two ships currently uh, in this area providing that support, providing uh, that shelter for people displaced, this isn't the reality for so many who are currently living in IDP camps across Southeast Turkey, and of course for many who are now homeless. Now, there has been some backlash against the government, calls for them to do more. The government says they are sending 6,000 more tents to the affected areas. They've said that, you know, they conceded this is an issue, they are working on it, this is a catastrophe that they have never faced before at this scale. But look, the reality is people here are frustrated, some are angry, and there is real pressure mounting on the government now to take further action to provide that support for those most in need. Julia? Yeah, and, and such signs of resilience too. You know, as you began speaking, there was a young man over your right shoulder who gave us a thumbs up um, and a big smile uh, in a red sweater if you go and find him. So our thoughts with him and all those, of course, impacted too. Nada, thank you. Nada Bashir there from Turkey. Now, as Turkey grapples with a mounting refugee crisis, the number of people fleeing Ukraine to neighboring nations has now exceeded 8 million people, according to the United Nations. And someone who understands the importance of helping these people rebuild their lives is our next guest, a Turkish-born immigrant who founded Chobani, a multi-million dollar food company where at one stage around a third of the workforce were either immigrants or refugees. Hamdi Ulukaya is the CEO and he's also the founder of the Tent Partnership for Refugees. That's a global business network of now over 300 firms who've committed to hire, train and support refugees in the workplace. And tonight, Tent hosts a vigil for Ukrainian refugees in London's Trafalgar Square, where the actress Helen Mirren is expected to appear, among many others. And Hamdi Ulukaya is also offering assistance to victims of the Turkey-Syria earthquake, and he joins us now. Hamdi, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I remember the last time you were on, you'd just been to Ukraine. And, and fast forward a year later, talk to us about the importance of this vigil, but also the importance of the contribution that these displaced people and refugees can make to their new societies. So good, be, so good to be with you again, Julia. As you said, last time we spoke, I was just visiting the border and it's been a, 
a long, long year. Um, but it's been a year. Um, and the difference between a year ago and now, and we know, you know, some of the, um, some of, some of the, the unknown, we know. Um, what we didn't know back then is how long this is going to last, right? So what I was impressed when I was at the border is how governments, European governments, how uh, individual citizens, and most importantly, how companies were right there at the gate, uh, at the border, and participating, helping people. I think there's so many things that we can be proud of, but one of the things that I am so proud is the act of businesses, how they come together and help uh, their employees, their customers, their consumers, but most importantly, humanity. Today, as you said, we have... Um, close to 6 million people um, still uh, you know, outside of uh, Ukraine as refugees. And they're in communities. We are here in UK, um, they're in Germany, they're in Poland, they're in France, they're all over the Europe. And as we look at the second year, is the most important thing that we can do today is make sure that Ukrainians, mostly women and children, who are away from their home, so they can stand on their own feet and provide to their families as this war goes on. You've also created a film, Hamdi. Talk to us about this. It's a 60-second film to highlight female artists because it, it goes to the heart of what you were saying there about I think around 90% of, of the displaced people or refugees from, from Ukraine are women and children, and they can also be a crucial, beneficial part to work places, but also societies wherever they are in the world and even when they're you know, yet to return to their, to their home nations. They should also be hired and utilised. So true, and that that short film is also made by a Ukrainian uh, creative, uh, amazing woman. Um, you know, all refugees, including Ukrainians, um, what you see, uh, you know, always is they're ready to participate. The resilience uh, that they have and the and the trouble that they have gone through does not. It brings so much, you know, it, it, with them. And I have seen it in my own experience at Chobani. And later on when I started Tent, and I often hear from my CEO uh, friends and the companies and the, and, and the colleagues, is the minute they start working, that's the minute they stop being a refugee. That's the minute they stand on their own feet. And being idle and, and away from society or community or in the companies is not something, uh, is a benefit to anyone. So the smartest thing we can do, not just help the refugees, of course, when they have an access to work, immediately helps, uh, helps them to, to provide themselves for their, uh, for their uh, uh, families. But the minute they participate in job, they also participate the community and society in a very, very uh, high level. So these women, highly educated, um, enormous amount of skills, but the most importantly, as I said before, Julia, is, is this common in all refugees, is the, is the willingness and, and, and to participate and do their best. And what you see, and when you remove certain uh, hurdles in the beginning, like language, shortcomings, maybe transportation, the simple things that you can think of, uh, those are short-time investment that we can make to remove those obstacles. But what we see in a very short time after, uh, they, they shine. And, and, and brings enormous amount of energy to the company and community.
Yeah, I mean, that's how you originally built your business and your story in this regard is, is so much so important. And I know this is also a rallying cry to, to European companies that are already stepping up, but for more to, to hire these um, these individuals and, and get them in the workplace. And it was actually the message, the strongest message of our last conversation was what you just said there, that you don't stop being a, a refugee simply because you move to a a safer place. It's when you have stability of a job and being able to take care of your family that that something changes, um, which I think is vitally important. But there is a business reason here too. I mean, your survey data shows this, that consumers want to um, buy from businesses that are not just providing money in terms of charity, but they are also being practical about this and hiring people like this um, and really helping them rebuild their lives. And we just we just announced that the survey all across Europe, including America yeah. and here in UK, consumers do want companies to participate and 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 hire uh, displaced people and refugees. And what happens is also the co- people who work for these companies, when a company open uh, you know program for for employees to participate, I often hear always that one of the most popular program is when they have, you know, employee training, uh, refugee hiring, or some kind of, um, you know, mentorship, um, uh, a skill up, uh, you know, upgrading. In internal work for a long time is one of the most popular uh, programs within the companies is the work that they do for the refugees. So you have consumer highly interested and, and absolutely supporting. You have internal employees population of these companies highly engaged and supporting and and there's a you know enormous amount of business case to make it here when it comes to return on these investments and how we help the company's culture uh, innovation uh, entrepreneurial spirit and often often we hear these and again the unknown is in the beginning of a little bit of obstacles uh, simple things like languages and transportation like mentioned uh, can be removed very very quickly uh, so from any dimension that you look for it is it is good for refugees, it's good for business, it's good for the community. Now, we didn't know a year ago how long this war was going to last, and here we are. And I think the people and the companies and the governments have done so much, and one of the best response we've ever seen, and we have so much to be thankful of. But this might last longer, and we have to be united for the Ukrainian people and say, we were here all year and we're going to continue to be here for you and, and support you going as long as it will take. Uh, yeah. And I think the, the visual tonight, um, this evening, is going to be a representation of that, is saying we are all here for you, Ukraine and all, all the Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, we, we want them to be able to go home as soon as possible. But for now, you're welcome in whichever society you've ended up in and we're going to help you participate. Hamdi, I have about a minute left, but I, I do want to very briefly talk about the support you've provided to Turkey as well. I believe it's now $2 million in, in donation. It's clearly very personal for you. You were born there, but you also, in the city that you were born in, experienced an earthquake, I believe, back in 1992. So you saw the devastation. Explain Explain the importance of support for, for Turkish people too, and Syrians. Oh, um, I know. I I am um, I'm far away. My heart is there with with people. Um, it's in the southeastern region of Turkey. I'm from the northeast. Um, yeah. You know, the people of Turkey have 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 lived through earthquakes. You know, uh, period of times. Um, the early days are extremely important from the relief efforts. Um, you know, providing food, shelters. 
uh, and and the earth is still shaking, and 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 I'm still connected, uh, you know, every day with the region. I think what we need right now is those urgent needs, and I try to do my best, and I reach out to a lot of business uh, businesses and my CEO friends and companies. I'm so proud how much have been done and continue to be done, um, and individual citizens, right, from all across the world and U.S. Uh, participate. And I think the one of the most important work, uh, Julia, as we talk about refugees, is the same is rebuilding it. Um, you know, uh, Turkish people are very resilient. Um, you know, the amazing togetherness is happening within the country, between government and NGOs, international communities. You know, these are the times, you know, in Turkish we say, your, your friend shows your true face in the dark days. And, and we, see, we see a lot of friends and other people, uh, friends of Turkey, are showing up, and, and not only in the relief efforts, but uh, I am very certain uh, in weeks and months to come, uh, continue to be the, with the people and rebuilding their lives. Your friends show their true face in dark days. We pray for greater light and more support. Hamdi, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. The CEO of Jabrani and founder so much, of the Jim. Tent Partnership for Refugees. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Presidential candidates in Nigeria are making their final pitches ahead of Saturday's election in Africa's largest economy. The crucial voting comes as the country faces a number of challenges, including inflation, high unemployment, and people looking outside of Nigeria for more opportunity. Larry Madoa joins us now from Lagos. Larry, great to have you on the show. Clearly much at stake in this election and not the usual candidate list for this election either. It's not the usual, and also for the first time, it's a three-horse race. So there is no one clear favorite to win this election. Any one of the three men who's favored to be in the top, the incumbent party's candidate, Bolatinubu, uh, or the opposition candidate, uh, Atiku Abubakar from the PDP, who's running for the sixth time, or the third-horse candidate in this case, Labour Party's uh, Peter Obi, who's very fond, who's very popular among the youth. Any one of them could be the winner of this presidential election on Saturday. And, in fact, it's so tight that there could be a runoff in Nigeria for the first time since the return to Madi Party democracy in 1999. We've been talking to people around the streets, and they tell us corruption and the economy are the top issues for them going to this election, even though a lot of elections in this country are determined by ethnicity and religion. But one of the major problems across the city is what is called Jakpa. It's an exodus out of the country to North America, to Europe. For many who can, they're getting jobs in the NHS, in Canada, and are broken that those who can leave are leaving. And one of the worst affected sectors is the health sector, where you see doctors, medical professionals, pharmacists, nurses, nurses all trooping out of the country. For instance, the Nigeria Medical Association says they lose about 50 doctors every week, Julia. I want, to, I want you to listen to one official from the health sector here. If nothing is done to reduce the rate at which people, doctors, medical professionals, healthcare workers are leaving the shores of this country, it's just a matter of years. I'm not sure whether any doctor will be left in this country. So some of those who are leaving are well-educated, they have decent jobs. But there's a saying here in Nigeria that Nigeria will happen to you, which means that all your money cannot insulate you from some of the systemic challenges that happen all the time. And the best bet for you is to go somewhere else, safer and more predictable, Julia. Wow, that is a mind-blowing statistic. 50 doctors a week. Wow. Larry, great to have you with us, as always. Thank you. 
All right, still to come here on First Move, a partnership to improve access to education for girls all around the world. An exclusive interview with Nobel Peace Prize laureate Malala Yousafzai and Airbnb co-founder Joe Jebbia on leading the charge for a more equal world. Welcome back to First Move and the fight to improve access to education, especially for young women around the world. On the forefront of this battle is activist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai. If you remember, back in 2012, Malala was targeted by the Taliban after speaking out about women's right to learn. After surviving and thriving following a devastating attack, she created Malala Fund with her father to advocate for girls that face the greatest challenges in accessing basic education. The organization works in 10 countries, including countries like Afghanistan, Nigeria and Pakistan, and so far has invested $28 million. But of course, more work needs to be done. And the World Economic Forum notes we are still 100 years away from education for all girls. Now, back in 2016, Malala and Airbnb co-founder Joe Jebbia traveled to Kenya and Rwanda alongside the Malala Fund to work on girls' education in refugee camps. That trip began a multi-year partnership between the two. And now Joe Jebbia has announced a $25 million donation to the fund, its largest donation to date. Joining us now for an exclusive interview is Malala Yousafzai, co-founder and board chair of Malala Fund, and Joe Jebbia, co-founder of Airbnb, who's also a member of the Malala Fund Leadership Council. Both, Malala, Joe, welcome. I said to you in the break, I'm starstruck, and I truly am. Um, thank you for joining us on the show. Malala, you're an inspiration. Joe, this is an inspirational personal donation. Let me begin with you. Just explain why you're making this donation to this fund and why you're doing it now. Uh, well, thanks, Julie. It's great to be with you both. Um, I first met, first met Malala back in 2015 at the screening of her documentary in San Francisco, and I was completely enamored both uh, by her and her organization <laughs> and her mission to make sure every girl has access to 12 years of free, safe, and quality education. And the more I came, came to know the Malala Fund, the more the scale of the problem started to become clear. Imagine 130 million girls around the world without access to education. Um, I wanted to invest more time and to understand the problem. So we did travel to Africa together back in 2016. I joined the leadership council, um, even had team members at Airbnb who volunteered to redesign the website for Malala Fund at malala.org. I've seen you mention that statistic before, by the way, and I think you called it outdated, which I think is a, a polite term and a diplomatic term for it, um, which is the crucial part of the, of the fight and the efforts that you're both making. Um, Malala, I think most people watching this will remember, will, will know your story, will understand why this fight is so personal to you. Um, thank you for, for the work that you're doing first and foremost, but just explain how important this donation is and, and what the money's going to go towards. First of all, I am just so grateful for this opportunity that Joe has given to Malala Fund. I cannot tell you how excited I was when I received a call from Joe and he asked me about the vision of Malala Fund. And I said, 
I like we need to do more for girls. There are still a hundred more than a hundred million girls who do not have access to education. Girls are not learning quality education in their schools. Girls are missing on the opportunity. But it's not just a loss for girls. It's a loss for the world. It's an economic loss. It's a political and a social loss as well. Um, so I was sharing all of my ambitious plans, and Joe said, "You know, I I will support you." And when I heard about his generous contribution to Malala Fund, I was just so grateful. And when you hear about the support of people, it helps you to believe even more in the mission that you fight for. We have been fighting for girls' education uh, through Malala Fund for the past 10 years. And to know that Joe has been with us consistently from the very beginning has helped us do so much work already. And it will this, his support will help us to do the work for many years ahead. Our our goal is to ensure to, uh, that we create a world where all girls can learn and lead, where they have access to 12 years of free quality and safe education. I was one of those girls who could not go to school. So I know how important it is for every girl, even that one last girl, to have access to education. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, going to help you virtually double the amount that you've invested, just to give people, again, a reminder of the scale of the investment that we're talking about. Joe, as you said, this is not just a one-off as enormous. I think mind-blowing is the term I would use. And I think um, I think we're hearing that from Malala in, in the excitement that she's expressing with, with what she's going to be able to do and what the fund's going to be able to do with this money. But um, why join the Leadership Council? Just explain that decision, because this is multi-years that we're talking about of working together, just finding innovative ways, I think, of, of helping women, young girls, access education that, as Malala quite rightly said, I mean, it's an economic benefit to all, to society, to allow this to take place. Mm -hmm. That's right, Julia. Along the way, I had a big aha moment, which was that educating girls has a massive ripple effect on other global topics. If you care about economic development, you should get involved. If you care about climate change, you should get involved. If you care about extreme poverty, you should get involved. Education equality is one of the most powerful ways to address these global topics. And so if you invest in girls' education, you're actually investing in a better planet for all of us, which is why I decided to step up my efforts here. Yeah, I, it's um, fantastic. Um, Malala, talk to me about some specific examples, if you can, because I was looking on your website and we can we can show this of what was going on in the different countries. I mean, I saw... The work, obviously, that you're yes. doing in Afghanistan, the statistics there, I think now 3.7 million people out of school, 60% of those are, are girls. And obviously that's that's worsening. Lebanon, I believe a third of girls at school in Lebanon now are Syrian refugees. I mean, the the, the need, the requirements, the investment that, that is required at this moment, sort of overwhelming. Talk about specific projects. So the situation for girls' education is alarming because there are human-made disasters that we have yeah. faced, including the wars and conflicts. And then there are, uh, you know, other natural disasters or still, you know, climate-related disasters that are impacting, including the recent floods in Pakistan or the current situation in Afghanistan where girls' education is completely banned. Girls cannot have access to secondary schools or universities. Women cannot do jobs. The situation is alarming in many parts of the world. And we have been taught this idea of progress being linear and that it will happen with time. But what we are witnessing right now is that uh, we not only need to achieve 
these uh, these moments of progress but we need to maintain them we are just so we are living in a very vulnerable uh, society we do not know uh, for when our rights can be taken away from us when laws can change and and when when the situation again you know when we are moving towards an an unequal society um, so for me it's just even more critical right now to ensure that we are investing in girls education through malala fund we work with local education activists in the countries that you mentioned including pakistan brazil nigeria ethiopia they are the people who are doing the research they are doing advocacy change policies they are engaging with the local communities parents teachers religious leaders community leaders to advocate for girls access to education we uh, are we are working directly with girls as well we have a platform called assembly which is a digital newsletter through which girls are sharing their stories of how they are addressing the problems that they are facing they're not just talking about uh, the problems but but how they're becoming the change makers and fighting them including climate change or mental health or the quality of education in school or did the discrimination that they face or the racism that they face so uh we believe in girls being the activist who can you know who need to be heard and we help girls to be present at the platforms where decisions about their future are made including the UN or um or or the climate uh conferences like these are the girls whose whose future is directly impacted by the decisions that leaders make when they're not present in their rooms their voices are not heard their the the issues that they face are not taken into consideration so our priority is to ensure that girls get the opportunity to raise their voice and then they need to be heard in the in the key rooms as well uh and 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 access to education for girls is their human right but it's also an economic opportunity as well and for so many reasons this has to be a, a priority for everyone you know you said something really important which was um some of the crisis that we see around the world is um as a result of just devastating accidents things like earthquakes that we've seen but some of them are human made tragedies war yeah. for example and what we've seen and on your website where you talk about your history and your background one of the things that you say is um it's not just about allowing girls to learn it's also about allowing them to lead and i think when you look at the leadership around the world the importance of getting women to a standard where they are educated enough to lead nations and perhaps make better decisions is also vital malala would you agree we need more female leadership around the world <laughs> no doubt i 100% support female leadership and and i support education because education creates access for women to so many opportunities that they may not have especially in patriarchal societies um in challenging environments so education becomes like a beacon of hope for them like that's the only light that they see think about the girls in afghanistan right now who do not have access to secondary education they do not see a future for themselves and they are fighting every day for their right to education they are protesting on the streets uh, they are there globally as well those of uh, those who uh, succeeded in the evacuation they are raising their voices so when you look at their dedication it tells you that they do not take education for granted education is future for them um and 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 i often tell people that if you are ever in doubt about the importance of education go ask a girl 
<laughs> you can ask a girl anything, quite frankly. Joe, I have to bring you in on this point. I have about 30 seconds left. I think the importance of, of the gift that you've provided and the importance of, of female education and, and leadership. You've already said it, really, the beneficial aspects, but um, would you agree more female leadership perhaps around the world and we may be in a better place? Yeah, I think Maul said it perfectly. You know, education is a right. It's a fundamental right for boys and for girls. And there's, you know, many, many girls around the world who don't have that right right now. Um, And Malala, I think it'd be great if you shared that statistic of the opportunity cost of not doing this economically. If all girls receive 12 years of free quality in, uh, education, it would add up to $30 trillion to the world economy. There is the economic benefit. And, you know, I think Joe and I will agree <laughs> on this. Like, with all the benefits, you know, it's a human right. It's the right of a yeah. child to have yeah. access to learning. They should be able to read and write and access knowledge. They should be able to achieve their goals in their life. So we need to respect this right and we need to give it to them it's our responsibility it's the leader's responsibility and i hope that people will do more for it it is a collective complex issue and it's important that we all play our role uh, and i hope that leaders become more ambitious and they and, and they make it their top priority yes and more female it's a conversation that we shouldn't have yes. to be having but we will and wowzers a $30 trillion opportunity. Um, if that doesn't smack these people around the head to understand the importance of doing this, I don't think anything will. Um, huge heart to you both. Thank you so much for the work, for the Thank personal you. donation, Joe. Um, I look forward to speaking to you soon and hearing about more progress and how you put in this money to work. Um, thank you both. Really, Thank true honour to talk to you. Thank you. Malala and Joe there. Welcome back to First Move. New criminal charges against FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried have been filed. U.S. prosecutors have just announced four additional criminal charges, including conspiracy to commit bank fraud and securities fraud. In December, he was charged in an eight-count indictment. Bankman-Fried, who was released on a $250 million bond, has pleaded not guilty to the charges announced back in December. And let me give you a quick look at uh, what we're seeing for stock markets at this moment in the United States, trading higher in early part of the session. The S&P 500 trying to break a four-session losing streak so far this week amid higher interest rate concerns. Chip giant NVIDIA helping turn things around too with better than expected earnings. It's predicting strong AI-related chip demand too. And finally, all we can say about this next story is, oh boy, take a look at this large metallic orb that has washed up on a Japanese beach. The unidentified, definitely not flying object has been nicknamed Godzilla's egg. How about that? And Dragon Ball, the bomb squad, fortunately says it's harmless. It's probably some kind of boy, get it, for boats that get loose. Authorities say one thing it is surely not is a Chinese surveillance device. Naughty. Yes, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next and I'll see you tomorrow.
When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.